Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, that's all you need to know about me. Uh, What I want to tell you about the podcast is the aim of these episodes is digging into behind the scenes stories of um, of popular films, films that I really like, um, some that I don't necessarily like that much. But in in each case, um, looking just to see some story that didn't necessarily, uh, in most cases, make it to the foreground around the film, the the time of the film's release, and just kind of examining some of the immense difficulties that go into realising a movie. Now, um, as 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 those of you who may have encountered my work on um, on the Denner Geek website may know. I have a slight affinity, uh, that's a bit of an understatement, for the work of Kevin Costner. And I thought it'd take me five episodes in uh, to film stories to get to one of the great man's films. Um, But without further ado, here's a little bit of a clip of what we're going to talk about next. This is English courage. Right then, 1991's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. One of what was originally going to be three competing Robin Hood projects. Um, In the late 1980s, there were scripts uh, being developed by TriStar Pictures, 20th Century Fox and Morgan Creek. Now, two of those would make it to the screen. Uh, the Morgan Creek production was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. We'll come to it in a minute. Uh, the, fo- uh, the 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 tri the star and the Twenty Century Fox one slightly different. One of them would migrate into the Patrick Bergen headline uh, Robin Hood that went straight to uh, straight to video in the US, but did get a cinema release in the UK. I think sorry, I think it debuted on television in the US before it went to video. There was also a project though uh, from TriStar now Columbia, well, or now part of the Sony Empire, um, which involved uh, diehard director John McTiernan. Um, And when the three films uh, were in the early stages of development, this was the one that was the most advanced. And it looked like uh, it looked like McTiernan's Robin Hood was going to go first. That would have knocked out one of the others. The transformative moment was Kevin Costner. Now, Costner um, at the time was making his directorial debut, Dances with Wolves, and he'd come off the back of Tony Scott's Revenge, a film that he felt boxed in by. I think those were his words. 
by the changes to the screenplay of that movie that he didn't really feel um, he, he had an awful lot of influence over. He was determined not to get into that position again. But um, when Morgan Creek was trying to lure Costner to its project, and it had originally tried to get Mel Gibson, apparently, it came up with um, it, it came up with a plan um, for uh, of just how to lure Costner, and that involved a director called Kevin Reynolds. Now, Kevin Reynolds and Kevin Costner were best friends. They've fallen in and out a few times over the years. They came together on a film called Fandango, which is well worth checking out. But also, uh, Costner asked Reynolds to uh, direct the buffalo hunt sequence in Dances with Wolves, which Reynolds duly agreed to do. And it's one of the most memorable sequences in that movie. If you remember, Costner is slap bang in the middle of that film and couldn't really direct it. And he trusted his, you know, his best friend to do it. So Morgan, Morgan Creek um, signed up Kevin Reynolds. And I, I, in the aftermath of that, Costner agreed uh, to make the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves movie his next project. So the cast the casting then went ahead. Robin Wright was cast in the role of Maid Marian, um, but just days before uh, cameras were due to roll on the movie, uh, she, she uh, that that role was recast. It was discovered that uh, isn't that a great phrase? It was discovered, but it turned out. Uh, particularly in this context, it turned out that Robin Wright was pregnant um, and so couldn't play the role. Um, and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio um, instead came in and took on the role with less than a week's notice. Um, and as a consequence of that, this apparently is true. Uh, the overruns of that film, uh, of the filming of Robin Hood, which we'll come to slightly, um, caused Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio's wedding license to lapse, and she had to she had to reapply. So there you go. Um, she, in consequence, has talked quite a lot about um, has talked has talked about the making of the film, about how there were basically two different movies going on in Robin Hood: Prince of Thieves. There's the Alan Rickman movie uh, and the rest of it. And when most of us think uh, of Robin Hood, um, as well as thinking of the mighty Costner's accent, uh, we do tend to think, rightly so, of Alan Rickman's BAFTA-winning performance as the Sheriff of Nottingham in the movie. And he, his BAFTA acceptance speech is just wonderful. And I'm just going to play you a little bit of that now. Uh, well, thank you. This, uh, this will be a healthy reminder to me that subtlety isn't everything. <laughs> But also of how much I owed to Kevin Reynolds, the director. He was working in a kind of maelstrom, and he's my hero. So thank you very much. To him. Interesting, though, uh, Rickman wasn't uh, wasn't the only person in the in the running for the role. Uh, Sam Neill and Richard E. Grant were both considered, and Rickman turned it turned turned the role down a couple of times he'd done one villain role already on screen he'd done um he, he played the antagonist in simon winter's western quigley down under starring tom Selleck, and that's worth having a look that's popped up on netflix uk and of course on top of that he'd done one particularly iconic uh villain role uh playing uh hans gruber in die hard uh, but Net Rickman eventually took the role on um, on the condition that he could have relatively free reign with the part. And I think it's fair to say he had relatively free reign with the part. Now, 
It was not an easy production, this at all. The film heavily relied on location shooting uh, in the UK in 1990. And helpfully, um, the filming was going on in the autumn as well, in the midst of fairly miserable British weather. I know it just sounds completely out of the ordinary, doesn't it? Um, this was a particular frustration to um, to director Kevin Reynolds and uh, and his crew, um, and they were finding that they only got you know a few a few hours of daylight really that they could adequately film in. Now the movie was not specially effects driven. Uh, was working to a tight deadline. It was due out in the summer of 1991 and the filming was was going on at the back end of 1990. Um, and so they, they were soon up against the clock on the film. Um, uh, and those weather problems were causing an awful lot of difficulties um, that, you know, they, they, they were just able to set up, wait for the light, um, do, do, you know, do as much as they can and then move on. But soon the schedule began to overrun. overrun. Now, in the context of more recently the, the Oscar winning The Revenant, uh, where they filmed it entirely with natural light, that was less of a, a you know, Robin Hood pales into insignificance in terms of contextual problems. But it was still a problem. The story too that um, often does the round surrounding the film is go just going back to Costner's accent in the movie it was whether or not um, the lead star was going to play the role with an in English accent. I couldn't really get to the bottom of this. Um, I just I, the the story does go that Costner was keen, Kevin Reynolds was less keen, um, and after a dialogue a dialect coach was hired, um, they just decided to go with something. A little bit more natural which is why Costner speaks as an American Robin Hood which I think in the scheme of the, of the film was you know probably the right the right way to go um, otherwise perhaps a little bit too effective don't forget too there's a big cameo at the end of a film uh, with someone who just doesn't speak uh, in an English accent at all but I'm not going to spoil that ca that cameo uh, in case you didn't know it. Now Reynolds <clears throat> Reynolds brought you know, a little bit of a guerrilla approach to the, the directing of the film um, in that you know he, he, he was very down and dirty with his camera he, he liked to follow the line of the action but also he was quite open to um, ju just rewriting uh, get, getting little lines here and there rewritten and again um, you know a, a lot various parts of Alan Rickman's dialogue was improvised and he was apparently using people like Ruby Wax and Peter Barnes um, just to sort ju ju just to sort that dialogue out because he wasn't particularly keen on the script and Reynolds apparently got this through by just not telling anyone um, in the uh, uh, involved in the production that the new lines were coming so when they were when they were being actually said on 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 set um, during the production that was the first time many of them had heard the lines in the first place eventually though the uh, fight the, the uh, production wrapped and the film went into the editing room um, and by the time we were getting to this stage of course Kevin Costner was a double Oscar winner Dances with Wolves had gone on to be an enormous triumph uh, against significant odds um, one, one, one Costner uh, as producer the best picture uh, Oscar uh, and he also picked up a gong for best director as well now when it came to editing the movie that's where the most notable fallout on Robin Hood Prince of Thieves came about because there were significant disagreements um, about the direction of the film now again depending which source you believe so that there were one or two people who found it 
reportedly uh, to be far too much Alan Rickman's film, that the emphasis was far too much on the sheriff, less on Costner, and the film arguably needed to be changed to accommodate that. Um, furthermore, there was a, a concern that the film was just running long. Now we should note that the the cut that actually went into cinemas was well over uh, was well over two hours long. But the problem was that the cut that Reynolds was putting together just wasn't winning the producers over um, to the point where and and this part of the story hasn't been disputed. Um, Kevin, Kevin Reynolds lost control over the film in the editing room. Now history would repeat itself. I'll come to that in a minute. But uh, the editing of the film was effectively taken over by Costner. And as people would, uh, people uh, as the studio would note at the time, we have an Oscar-winning director called Kevin who's who's in charge of this movie. Um, but there is there's a story that uh, this went to the extent of the original editor of the film, Peter Boyle, being physically locked out of the editing suite. So the final cut of the film that was released into cinemas that went on to do, you know, really extraordinary business. This was the summer of, you know, the real summer of two massive movie stars. And the two big films were Terminator 2 Judgment Day with Arnold Schwarzenegger at the height of his powers and Robin Hood Prince of Thieves with Kevin Costner almost at the height of his. I think only the bodyguard really would would supersede it in terms of just sheer box office pull. Um, But under Directors Guild of America rules, um, the producers of the studio were contractually obliged to show their final cut of the movie to Kevin Reynolds. Um, and the friendship between Reynolds and Costner clearly had taken some damage here. Reynolds admits to being, um, you know, really unimpressed with the version of the film that, that came out in the end. To the point where, I, I, and this is where the story got interesting, you know, particularly interesting, an extended cut of the film, and I don't know whether you've seen this, but an extended cut of the film did make it to DVD and it came out what I mean this would have been you know a good few years ago now and it is available now and it's 148 minutes long um, and it, it's got you know it paints quite a different picture of the first half of the movie at least I did get the chance to talk to Kevin Reynolds about this um, in about 2008, I think it was. And I, I did ask him how he felt about uh, the, the fact that the original version was out there. And he, he just said, yeah, I mean, he really wished that the original version had been that. But that he was glad that the extended version was out there. Now, the extended version did indeed contain an awful lot more of um, Alan Rickman and in particular it had uh, more of his relationship with the Mortiana character uh, revealing a lot more backstory in there and it's got adding in worshipping at the altar of the gods but it does I, I mean the only thing I'd say is it does notably slow the film down and already this is a film that takes some 40 minutes um, to, to really get going to really find its feet now as I've got older I'm less complainant about that given that we now seem to have blockbuster movies that seem to kick off in about a, a minute flat and have to arrest you head up, uh, you know, right from the off. Um, and Robin Hood certainly takes its time. Um, other little bits and bobs surrounding the film, um, the, the, there's one notable expletive uh, that Christian Slater uh, says in the movie that was cut out of the UK uh, cinema release where he goes, F me, I cleared it. Um, there was a story that, um, that that this was put in just to ensure that the film got a PG-13 rating in the US rather than a softer rating that just would have been commercial suicide. Um, I don't necessarily, I'm not utterly convinced that that story's correct, um, but I do think it's quite a nice little one to throw in. One that actually, one that very much is correct though, 
is um, the retired former head of the British Board of Film Classification, James Furman. Um, you know, a hugely controversial figure in terms of film censorship and certification in the UK. On his retirement, said that his one regret of all of his time in office was passing the movie as a PG. Um, he thinks it should have been a much harsher film, uh, a much harsher rating. And um, the 12 rating was available at the time. And DVD versions of, of the film have been given the 12 certificate in the UK, uh, the, that extended version. And bluntly, not surprising at all. Now, in terms of the relationship between Costner and Reynolds, it, it would um, it would eventually repair, uh, only for history to repeat itself on Waterworld in 1995, where their falling out appeared to be, from the outside in, uh, even more brutal. They also collaborated on a smaller film that Reynolds directed called Rapa Nui, um, which Reynolds has described as the hardest film you know that that, that he, he ever had to make. They were effectively on an island with only getting supplies uh, once a week to to that island and it, it, a very, very harsh condition in which to make a feature film. Um, I will come to Waterworld inevitably in a future podcast because bluntly, how can you avoid it? Um, but also it's worth noting that even in the aftermath of Waterworld, Reynolds and Costner came back together again to work on the television miniseries Hatfield and McCoys. So their friendship, I, I mean, it looks like it could be quite a volatile one, but it has produced, um, you know, four, four projects of very real merit. For my second film this week, I'm going to move forward to something far more contemporary. Um, production's due to start on the 25th James Bond movie, directed by Danny Boyle later this year at the time of recording. Um, but I want to have a chat about the 24th. So, uh, here's a little bit of a clip just to get you in the mood for it. Forensics finally released this. What is it? Personal effects they recovered from Skyfall. You've got a secret. Something you can't tell anyone. Because you don't trust anyone. Spectre then, uh, released in 2015, less than 12 months uh, after it started filming, which still, even as I think about it, um, is just an extraordinary, an extraordinary achievement. I think it goes some way to explain why the film is quite so long as well too, in that the amount of time for post-production to actually just sit and watch footage and physically edit it uh, was truncated to the point where the movie, uh, as I'm sure I'll come to again, it basically finished just days before the first press screening of the movie. They didn't even have a chance to have a test screening of it. Um, it. It was that type production. And you just look at the intensity of some of the scenes in there as well. That huge opening sequence in Mexico City, which the production of which just spread across pretty much the entire production of the film. That bits of it were done on location in Mexico. Um, then there were rigs created back at Pinewood Studios um, to do some of the, the, the helicopter rolls. The real helicopter was shot with nine different cameras all around the square, uh, all around the square in location on, in Mexico. You, then you've got the the actual stunt uh, stunt performers in the helicopters. Now they couldn't actually film 
those sequences in Mexico City because it's seven and a half thousand feet above sea level they can't do the level of stunts they required in thin air so they had to do the, the assorted barrel rolls at lower altitude they had to weave the CG in later in the day and you've got the complexity of this sequence you've got like three or four quite intense difficult uh, moving parts um, that all had to be married together now all this was in the midst of a very complex, elongated um, physical production. I think that, that the fact that Spectre is so physical, um, they, they were very intent. Director Sam Mendes were, was very intent on, the, on, on saying this has to be Bond, this has to be big. Now Mendes, you might recall, had, I mean, he'd done Skyfall, which is the first billion-dollar grossing Bond, um, and initially he was reluctant to return for Spectre, and the speculation indeed was that he wasn't. Um, it, it, we, we finally got the nod that he was going to come back and a, a launch event for Spectre was held um, and it was streamed online um, on December the 4th 2014 and at that event they revealed the UK release date 26th of October 2015 and it's just like to shoot, edit and release the film that quickly even appreciating that pre-production work had begun I'd imagine some third third unit uh, second unit stuff had begun as well um, but throw in there's a Christmas break that had to be that had to be woven in um, the film was going to shoot in Mexico Morocco Austria Italy uh, Pinewood Studios of course the natural home of Bond films on the James Bond stage Vatican City as well as various locations around the UK this, in my mind, to my untrained mind, was the kind of film um, that you'd need two years. You know, I, 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 even appreciating not not an awful lot is done in visual effects, or certainly not overtly in visual effects. You need a couple of years to, to do it. And they did it, I mean, filming began in earnest on December the 6th, 2014, just two days after that announcement. And it would wrap up on July the 5th, 2015, seven months seven months they had to start the, the, uh, to, to actually get the film finished um, around the uh, a, a large editing team was based primarily at Pinewood Studios and they were having to work on footage as the production was shooting in various parts uh, uh, around the globe now the way Sam Mendes was able to keep on top of everything that was going on as well as dealing with the following day's um, sequences, looking at the dailies for that particular day, and also seeing what, what's been edited so far is a, a production system called PIX, P-I-X, um, and that meant wherever people were in the world, they could keep tabs on it, presuming, of course, they had the Wi-Fi password. Now, Mendes, just to make it a little bit more difficult uh, for himself, wanted to shoot the film on 35mm, um, rather than digital, and that also threw up some fairly, um, you know, some fairly hefty, hefty logistical problems that that he had to that, that he had to keep on top of. Daniel Craig, at one point during the production of the film, um, he 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 sustained an injury as well, and and it had to work around that. In fact, most of these film stories that I seem to be talking about, there does seem to be some kind of injury somewhere along the line. But let's just look at say that there's a sequence um that there's a sequence where helicopters fly over um fly over the city of london 
and you know it, it, it's one of the more you'd suggest on the surface logistically straightforward sequences in the whole film but anything but 10,000 people 10,000 people had to be forewarned uh, that all, the, all these people who were living within the fly zone had to be forewarned uh, what was going to happen they had to, they had to be told in advance that these helicopters were going to fly there were 17 arches along the river Thames that were lit up at night um, and this went on for a period of four or five weeks to allow Mendes to get the shots that he needed. There were just to manage the, and keep on top of the logistics of night shooting around the Thames for Spectre required a crew of around 200 people. And that's before you turned a camera on. That's before you got Daniel Craig in his suit. That's before you know you put all the component parts of what you would expect uh, from a Bond movie. Um, and the logistics of it were just were just really, really, really tight. Now Craig's injury in the midst of it, and he sustained this in the film's uh, train fight scene, needed minor surgery. He had to have surgery towards the 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 end of production. And all of these things were going against one of the tightest clocks I can remember on a modern blockbuster film. And I can't, I've used this example before, but I think it's a really important one. I keep coming back to Mad Max Fury Road, an intensely physical action movie where so much footage was shot that it took three months to watch all the footage. In the case of Spectre, they didn't have three months between getting the last shot in the can, um, but can, I, I, and 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 having some kind of assembled final cut they didn't i mean were it not for the team working around the clock um they just simply wouldn't have wouldn't been able to keep on, on on top of it at all just the physical work now the filming eventually wrapped up um after you know after uh, after originally scheduled so it's completed in july and the filming on the movie miraculously considering what they're up against only ran two weeks over schedule now craig's injury accounted for part of that but another was the fact that because the movie was heavily reliant on um, on location work and exterior style um they were fighting bad weather simply i mean don't forget this film in various parts of the world was shooting in uh, was shooting in winter and winter weather is is notoriously fairly unpredictable um the uh, so once the once the final shot, as it were, were were were, were in the can, um, Mendes just didn't get time for a break. He then had to go straight. Uh, they relocated at that point the post production work to Soho, and that's where Mendes and his team basically lived. Um, that three months after the final day on principal photography on Spectre, um, Mendes uh, through through you know just sheer round the clock hard work from him and his team were within two weeks of locking down the final cut of the movie. Now, it's interesting to do a contrast here um, in the, with Skyfall because, I mean, Bond films, as we're going to see with Bond 25, they do work to quite tight schedules and Skyfall's schedule was also really quite tight. The one notable difference that it's worth bearing in mind is, I don't know if you remember around the time of Skyfall, that was going to be a lower budget Bond. We've just come out the back end of the, the financial crisis. Um, studios were still you know, cutting their cloth accordingly. And as a consequence of that, the decision was made to primarily locate Skyfall in the United Kingdom that they wanted it to be primarily a British film with British locations. And there are a couple of um, there are a couple of uh, other nations that are visited in the movie, 
but there's nowhere near the element of globetrotting that you see in Spectre. And if you think that every time you see Daniel Craig in another location has required that entire film production crew to up sticks, to go to another airport, to sit through another security check, to, you know, to, to do the flight, to check into another hotel, and all of these switches of location um, and don't forget that they're very, very varied locations all have a logistical element to them that just takes days out of the days out of the uh, out of the schedule. Um, whoever actually plotted the Spectre schedule, I, I just get nothing. You know, I, I, I have nothing but admiration on it. Now, going back to that um, final press screen, that, that first press screening, I was at the first press screening of the film. The queue went right away. Uh, uh, um, right the way down Leicester Square in London. It's the longest queue I've ever seen to get into a press screening, but it was the only press screening. It's the only one they had time to do before the film was out. And I remember that the embargo on reviews uh, lifted um, what an, an hour afterwards, even if there was one. And so I remember walking out of Leicester Square and you just saw film reviewers sat on laptops trying to bash their first reactions of Spectre out to be the first person to get their review online. Um, and the whole, I, I thought it was quite a fitting testament to the whole level of haste that had surrounded the entire production. There was still a problem though. Um, the problem being that when the British Board of Film Classification saw the final, the, the, the cut of Spectre that Sony Pictures, who was distributing, as it turns out for the last time, uh, wanted to put into cinemas, it advised Sony that it was going to give it a 15 certificate. And, and that was just a no-go. That's an utter red line. Sony um, and, and the Bond producers... Eon as well, um, had been treated to the first billion dollar Bond movie, don't forget, with, with Skyfall, and they wanted another slice of that. So as a consequence of that, um, they went back to, uh, and, and they, they, t they sought advice from the British Board of Film Classification on which sequences needed to be trimmed and how they could get a 12A. Um, and as a result of that, two scenes in the, uh, two, two small moments in Spectre were indeed cut back. And the 12A certificate was um, was eventually awarded. Now, um, Spectre did make it into cinemas. Uh, the competition was a little bit more intense. The reviews were a little less kind, and much was made of the fact that this was a very long film. And re-watching the movie, I think the point where I I I really enjoy it up to the point where Christoph Waltz comes in, and then I kind of think it takes a slightly more bloated turn. But there's little doubt that what you get is uh, that the, the money spent on it is in camera. You know, the explosion, the, the, the huge explosion sequence, which I don't want to go into detail on for spoiler reasons, looks looks hugely dramatic. And I believe there was claim that that was the biggest explosion ever, ever seen, uh, real explosion ever seen on film. And I'm in absolutely no position to quarrel that. I thought it looked it looked outstanding. And I remember seeing the movie on a big screen. It's just like, wow, that, that's just great. The aftermath, though, um, kind of left Bond in a little bit of limbo that he's only just come out of. I don't think anyone was... Um, I, I, I think there was a general hope that, uh, certainly from the distributors, certainly from the makers, that they were going to get Skyfall level of acclaim and Skyfall level of box office. And they got neither, really. And I, I think time will be a little bit kinder to Spectre than some people have been towards it. Um, but conversely, there was a little question that this was um, a slight disappointment compared to what I think 
um, what I think people were really well certainly the people funding the movie were, were looking for as a consequence the um, I mean Sam Mendes quickly distanced himself from doing another James Bond and indeed he isn't doing another James Bond film um, there was a long period where Daniel Craig um, it looked like he wasn't going to return to the uh, to the role at all um, not least commitments to other other projects and the betting was soon on would Tom Hiddleston be the uh, be the next James Bond etc etc as it's turned out Craig will return and it is believed that it will be his swan song uh, Danny Boyle is directing from a script by John Hodge and James Bond 25 uh, is going to be in cinemas in October 2019 and what's interesting is they're giving themselves the same truncated roughly period of time as they've had on the last couple of Bonds uh, from the start of physical production to the release the movie I'm intrigued to see uh, how it will uh, how it will pan out but in the meantime this has been episode 5 of film stories thank you so much for your support you can find me on Twitter at film uh, at Simon Brew you can find the podcast on Twitter at film stories pod um, it's hugely appreciated any oxygen you can give to this little podcast I'm not a multinational uh, conglomerate uh, more for me um, and thus a a every every little bit of word of mouth helps thanks a lot for listening and I'll be back again soon with some more film stories <laughs>